everyone, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name is Alice and today I get to share with you an interview with Bonnie Cassidy. Bonnie has been part of my work and life as a poet almost as long as I've been writing. I was lucky enough to create a working relationship with Bonnie to start with. She was the first person to read my poems and give me feedback on them. And over time, we have become friends, which is really, really lovely. And for so long, I've wanted to have her on Poetry Says. We finally made it happen the other weekend here at my place. We cover so much ground in this interview. We talk about what it was like for Bonnie growing up in Cronulla as something of an outsider. We talk about the role of visual art in her work how she feels about her earlier work these days. Uh, We talk about all the many poets that are embedded in her books, which include Certain Fathoms, which came out from Puncher and Watman in 2012, Final Theory, which came out from Giramondo in 2014, and Chatelaine, which is Bonnie's latest collection, and that one came out in 2017. I wanted to read you a little tiny bit from Chatelaine before we get into the interview. This is Bonnie's poem, one of my favorites, Hot Mess. All is rendered less, with quivering tines pricked above a sock of heat. Dishy, this one, crammed with history, stuck, and how its cheek is full. Foams that lay before turn soggy and, worse, triple sweet. Carve, Jane carve or pass and think of words until your perfect mound arrives. Maybe we could start by talking about Sydney. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. (laughs) I don't usually do that. But yeah, you were born and grew up in Sydney. Yes, in Cronulla, which once upon a time I wouldn't have uh, expected anyone else to have ever heard of, but (laughs) unfortunately it's become an iconic um, name. So in southern Sydney, down near um, Port Botany and um, Bangport, and the Port Hacking River, a sort of little finger of sandstone and bays um, and inlets down there. Sounds really nice. It's a very physically beautiful place. Like so much of Sydney's foreshore is. Yeah. There's a lot of fishing, a lot of dinghies. There's there's these beautiful sort of weeping sandstone cliffs and there's seaside banks here and there's caves and there's middens and it's become a much more a much more upper middle class place than it was when I grew up there. Mm. It's become more of a kind of yet another kind of Sydney coastal suburb that's desirable in the sense of real estate, I think, in the last five years. Yeah, right. Mm. And when you, but when you were there as a, a young person, did you ever think that you would remain there or was it always like, I will leave and go to somewhere else? Yeah, I think as soon as I was ready to go to high school, that was when I actually had the explicit conversation with my family about where are you going to be educated. Mm. My parents were really uh, disturbed by the idea that I would go to the local high school which was is basically the setting for puberty blues 
and um, <laughs> that was not not the picture that they had worked out for me as a young woman or as a young person. And um, I'm glad that they had strong ideas about that. It's actually one, you know, it's one kind of parental intervention that I was pleased to kind of follow <laughs> as a 12-year-old. And I managed to find um, one or two friends from my region who were going to school in the city so we kind of could buddy up and go together. And I think from that moment on, as soon as I started commuting into Sydney City as a, you know, preteen, mm. it was like, yep, okay, my world is metropolitan yeah now or at least you know it, it was going to be that for me through my teens and 20s mm, mm. and um that world felt so much more homely than where my actual home was not my parental home which always was a wonderful warm lovely essence of home place but that home always felt like an island mm. within the sea of the rest of Cronulla to me and I always felt like quite an outsider being someone who was interested in, you know, creative things. And uh, my parents watched films that other people didn't watch. And my brother was a musician. And so I got interested in stuff that he was interested in. And I didn't know other people who were into more than kind of Saturday morning sport, mm. going to see the Sharks play, a lot of sort of surf life saving nippers, a lot of body sculpting mm. and the opposite of that was Sydney so I my mum's my a painter and she'd always we'd always gone into the city you know it's about an hour trip to from Cronulla to oh, the city far, yeah so that's why I say into the city yeah. it's like going going in into town yeah. and town town was always the city just town wasn't the main street of Cronulla so we would go into town to do everything we'd go into town to go out for family lunches we'd go to town to go to the movies because movies that we wanted to see my parents wanted to see weren't playing at the tween in Cronulla we couldn't see Jim Jarmusch in Cronulla so we would go to Norton Street or whatever and if we wanted to eat you know Chinese or Lebanese we'd go into Newtown and we'd go into Dixon Street and um, my mama being a painter we were in it the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the MCA and other small galleries, you know, every other weekend. And so I think it, that's probably another reason why when I started going to school in East Sydney, I felt like, yeah, this is my cultural home. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask you about visual art, actually, and whether you use that in any way as a, as a starting point for writing. And I also wanted to hear about the cover for Chatelaine because that the photograph you have on the front of the book has always fascinated me. But I've, I know I, I look at it and I sort of think, I wonder why that picture. Mm. Like, yeah, yeah. Art has always been a big sort of um, piece of my, you know, imaginative firmament. I think because of my mum's influence, I grew up with, um, you know, just discussions about pictures a lot. Uh, lots of art books and going into her studio every day and she'd say what do you think of this and she talked me through something she was making and even just the smell of the materials of her work was sort of part of the fabric of my you know what was normal for me at home and um that language I suppose of images has just never gone away like any you know mm -hmm. anything that becomes part of the kind of informative culture of your childhood stays with you for better or worse this was a good thing and yeah I don't know it's sort of like my other 
you know, you have those ideas of sliding doors about your, your own career. Yeah. Um, thank God for that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And I remember with Poltra's haircut too, which was really great at the time. Yeah. So um, <laughs> yeah. I, um, think now oh, I could easily imagine having decided in, you know, when I was 17 that I was going to really get into being an, a visual artist mm. that, that could easily have happened. Not necessarily because I had the talent. I'm not a bad drafts person, but I could have, I could have applied myself to it in the same way that I chose to apply myself to words, I think. Um, and it would have made sense to me and there would have been a, mm, a supportive world that would have made that normal for me. Yeah. Wow. Um, so and it's, yet you didn't. and yet I didn't, but it's always been there as that kind of like parallel language, yeah. that parallel medium mm. that just seems like, um, mm. a, a, a kind of mother tongue of the mind, you know, it just makes sense to refer to images. So it's naturally there a lot of the time when I'm writing either as an explicit prompt mm. in the kind of sense of ekphrasis. But increasingly, I suppose, um, or maybe maybe it's always been happening, but I became more aware of it with the last book with Chatelaine was that it's um, not so much ekphrasis as it's kind of chains of images that get digested and filtered and I can trace where they've come from back to sources of image, but it's not that I'm writing poems directly in response to those images. It's more that the images go in, whether they be moving images or sculpture or mm. paintings or photographs by other people. And then they, they pop up to me later on as, um, you know, scenes, I guess. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's such a perfect way to describe your work, actually, chains of images. I don't know mm. if you're particularly comfortable with that but when you said sure. that I was like yeah that's what it is do you remember the moment of choosing between visual art and well maybe it wasn't a choice because I can remember a, a specific moment at like 14 or something sitting in front of a fire out at um, my aunt's property in Michelego and like literally asking the universe to tell me whether I should be a writer or a visual artist. <laughs> Did you roll one of those eight balls that were really cool in I think 92? I was like, uh, point the smoke this way for this. And yeah, like I'm really bad at making decisions. <laughs> but yeah. But when you do that, like I wanted it to go a certain way. Mm. I wanted it to go towards writing. You wanted confirmation. Yes. Mm. Cosmic confirmation. Yes. That's what we all want. Anyway, did you have anything like that? <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I also sat in front of a fire and I was a member of the Junior um, Gould's League of Birds when I was a child. Oh. And I have a strong memory of sitting in front of a fire and writing an entry to the Gould League Junior Poetry Competition. Mm. And I, I can't remember what the theme was, but that was the first memory I have of sitting down to deliberately write something creative uh finishing it for somebody else to read yeah to submit to something mm. to call a poem and loving it yeah right and that probably then went you know i was probably like seven or six at the time and that I, it's not like I, I kept writing but you know it wasn't until i was in uni that i sort of thought about oh poetry is you know the mm -hmm. the form that speaks to me the most i don't really remember a decision like a crossroads between mm. visual art and writing. It must have happened when I was, like I said, probably 17 or 16. 
it's you know, I'm finishing school and yeah. everyone's talking about what next. And I was really into study. I knew I wanted to go to uni mm. and I must've, you know, I remember going and kind of researching writing courses in that final year of school. So I must've already at that stage decided by the time I was, yeah, I guess 16, that that's what I was going to do next. But I kept making, you know, I did final year, you know, art, visual art, double art, so I could spend as much time as possible in the school studios. And there were only two of us in the year group who were allowed to do double art and drop maths. And That's so great when you can I took it really that. seriously. Yeah. I took it really seriously. I wrote essays. I, I remember very clearly moments in my art education that have never left me. And yeah, I think, yeah, it, it was always there as something. I, I, look, I just think because I had a role model in my life mm. of someone who did that professionally, um, even though my mum sacrificed the ability to do that, you know, by being a full-time mum until we were, you know, well, probably about that time when I was finishing school, she was still, you know, um, always practicing as a painter. And I suppose it didn't, it didn't seem to me something that was out of reach. I was just lucky that there was a, there was a figure who kind of normalized yeah. doing that thing, which meant that, yeah, doing HSC art was like a really big deal. And I, I thought that I was making something that would be, you know... <laughs> I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't grandiose. I just sort of, I really, it was really important to me that I made something that I thought was like as good as Tracy Emin or as good as Tracy Moffat. When I got Chardonnay, that was like the first thing that I was really intrigued by was this photograph. Mm. And uh, it is by Mike Gray. It's called Susie and Nick 2011. Um, why this picture? Uh, I think I came to Mike Gray's work before I came to that particular picture and I was really um, interested in him. I'm interested in photography. We've talked about my interest in image. So I'm interested in photography. My husband's a photographer. It's a big part of my life in terms of what I consume. And um, the previous book, Final Theory, had a cover image by Trent Park, an Australian photographer, Again, I came to Trent Park's work and then I looked for the image that matched the book. Mm, okay. And it was the same with Mike Gray. Um, I actually first saw Mike Gray's work on the cover of one of John Mateer's books. Oh, um, his I about as well. book called The West. Yeah. Um, and I, it always really fascinated me. And then I was visiting Perth um, a number of years ago and went to the State Gallery there and there was a small exhibition of Mike Gray's photographs, including the picture that I recognised from Matthias cover um, and I'd never looked at Gray's work. It suddenly all came together and I was like, who is this photographer? And then went home and wasn't even thinking about a book cover and started looking at more of his work. And then I came across this particular black and white series, which is almost all done in like a sort of backyard. Mm. And as I started to look through it just for my own curiosity, I was like, Oh, there's some, some images here that really seem to, illustrate my book you know at that stage I was wrapping up the book and or probably oh, yeah towards wrapping it up and I was I was thinking about covers and it all sort of yeah came together and I looked through a number of the photos in that series mm. and came across probably a selection of two or three that I felt could fit with Chatelaine and finally settled on on this one I don't think I got I think I got Tim's input on which one he felt as a reader would be and, and which as an image or a cover image would look best. That one 
I loved the setting of the whole series, which is this kind of strange making of suburban scenes. There's, there's some sort of like grotesquery and there's doubling, there's, there's double exposures, there's people wearing masks, there's actually reminiscent of some of Trent Park's work where the kind of suburban normal is made weird and, mm. you know, that is, a, I don't know, I guess that's the thread that's somewhere in Chatelaine, the normal when it goes wrong. And so this was interesting to me. Of course, when I first saw it, I thought it was a mirror, a mirror image. Um, and then on closer inspection, realized that it's two different people. So I love the illusion. I love the illusion of the mirror yeah. um, and the illusion of the illusion of the mirror. Um, and this really spoke to the book quite strongly. Mm-hmm. And I liked that the, um, the sex of the two people is ambiguous. I felt that they were probably women, but I wasn't really sure. And that appealed to the, a lot of the voices in the book. Mm. It's also really important that one of them is holding a, a stubby. Um, and I made sure when I went to Giramondo with the image, I said, when you crop that image, the beer has to stay in because this is a book that is in many ways alcohol-filled. Um, at least in its periphery. And um, it's important that the illusion and the kind of uh, the reality of this picture includes um, a kind of, includes an influence of some kind, um, but particularly that one. So um, there are some poems, so there's one or two poems in the book that refer to um, Victorian photographic studios. Mm. And the background of that particular picture is very similar to some of the staged uh, Victorian Australian uh, photo studios um, that you can find in colonial archives and state collections. There's kind of bracken fern um, usually arranged in the studio and it's got this kind of slightly slightly kind of oceanic Pacific look to the vegetation. Um, You have a sense that you're somewhere in a colonial setting but it's also staged. So you know I think probably happens to people lots with cover images that you just find something that mm. seems to if not directly illustrate it brings together a whole lot of themes in a way that you could never say with words which is ideal right the image goes so much further than what i've just said <laughs> well yeah but i mean it sounds like there are so many reasons no it's not just one reason to mm-hmm. have that that picture there. no it's kind of charmed you know yeah. you find something and you think this is too it's it's too good to let go and yeah. it's too it's too abuzz with possibilities mm. um, to not use. That's so great. Mm. So serendipitous that you found that when you were over in, in Perth as well. I know. Um, it was only later that I thought, oh, John or someone else might see it and go, oh, she's just used, you know, someone else has already <laughs> used Mike Gray for an Australian poetry book cover. Oh, but see, yeah. that's the pool, the small pool that we swim in. So. Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah, it's very true. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you how you feel about this book and Vital Theory, um, and also if you want to just talk about it, Certain Fathoms now, because I know that you're working on a new, a totally new project, it's a non-fiction project, um, but I remember talking to you around the time that Chatelaine was about to come out, and you talked about feeling a certain level of, like, separation from the work, even at that stage. And I totally understand that now with my own collection kind Mm. of on the verge of coming out. It Mm. feels so far away. And it's a weird thing because you have this moment of like, 
it all culminates, or at least publicly culminates, but mm. actually in your world it was kind of over. old news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how do you feel about the, the three books? Um, yeah, I, I think I've come to um, really own past work over the last few years such that it always feels very present to me and I'm very proud of it even when, to me, it is old and it belongs to a certain phase of my writing I really believe in, in owning stuff that you've put out into the world. And particularly with formative work, like when I look at Certain Fathoms as a first book now, you know, I, there was a time when I looked back at it and I was like, oh, you know, I wish I could go back and revise it or I hope no one reads that now. And then I kind of got to a point where I was like, you really have to come to terms with that, Bonnie. you really got to stop looking at your first book and A, being so hard on it and B, kind of not really seeing it for what it, is you know and I, I sort of spent some time rereading it and thinking oh yeah okay I see the DNA that goes from the first book through to the second and the third and I, I kind of honor that that without that book I wouldn't have written the second one without the second one I wouldn't have the third one you know and so there's this kind of interdependency of the work you can't just cut it off and go oh well that was you know that was me then that was me then and you know let's not talk about that now that's you know that's irrelevant it's not at all it's totally relevant and it's an artifact but it's something that I made with thought and purpose and it's informed later work and it's informed the ways that you know my three and a half readers <laughs> might see my writing so um I I'm really fond of all the books yeah I'm, I'm really fond of them I I don't go back and re-read as a matter of course I did think recently of doing that and maybe just setting aside a day and going you know Maybe mm. I'll just spend this with my own words, spend so much time consuming other people's words day in, day out. Maybe I should go back and just sit with mine and yeah. be be a reader of myself. Mm. I think Bart, Roland Bart has this statement about how the author can the author can certainly go back to their own text, but they will only ever do so as a guest. Oh, and I really yeah. like that idea of kind of going back and, you know, visiting your own work mm. and and taking pleasure in it as a visitor rather than going back with a cringe or going back and seeing it you know as a kind of um inscription of yourself it's not a tombstone <laughs> yeah and it doesn't have to be static either no. i was so happy that i got to talk about final theory in depth with philip ball and Anne elby that time mm. for verity la and i felt in that conversation um i was just so conscious of the fact that we were reading final theory like final theory to me is it's uh it feels very malleable and like stretchy and, mm. and there's so many ways that you can come at it and things you can do with it yeah um and yeah so i guess even even if you were to go back to it you'd probably see a whole bunch of other stuff yeah i think so and yeah. i think i'd see you know with more distance i start to see those um those connections between the continuum of my work i think when you're closer to a book it seems like it's a standalone yeah. thing and you think that the experiments or the innovations or the decisions you've made in it pertain only to that book and you know you would never have made them before but you look back and you think no actually there is there is continuity mm. those long lines didn't come out of nowhere and that white space didn't come out of nowhere mm. it's all seeded in earlier work mm. so you've prompted me to go and do that oh yeah great yeah. <laughs> just I quietly forward to hearing what that's like <laughs> I'd love to hear too about which poets or writers your poetry is in conversation with. 
uh, if it's in conversation mm. with anyone or oh, yeah. you were saying that your you know the long lines and the white space don't come out of nowhere can you sort of draw lines from these books to particular poets or even mm. schools or yeah I definitely can um, but I think my perspective on that keeps changing in the same way that I was saying before that looking back my understanding of the the internal DNA of my poetics keeps it keeps maturing in the same way I look back now and I think oh, the person that I thought was most influential on that book actually wasn't that person at all it was something else yeah, right. um, uh, yeah I mean so much I'm, I've never I've always resisted that question of like who are your favorite writers who are who are the poets that really influence all of your work because I just don't read that way and I don't think anyone else does either who's a writer quite honestly but sure people have their perennial favorites like movies that you rewatch. Um, Maybe I'm just projecting myself onto others here, but I, I do think that we, our tastes change more than we give them credit for. Well, I think you're right that your relationship with a writer probably should change. I think you're kind of dead in the water if you're saying, mm -hmm. well, I mean, Robert Frost's Mending Wall is a, is a perfect poem and that's what we should all be aiming for. Mm -hmm. Like, when I first came across the, that school of writing, I never realised that they and Jane Kenyon's the same for me too mm. now I'm like she's brilliant but she totally doesn't have any conversation with the land and its history mm. and her place as a as mm. a colonizer and that's something I think as Australian writers that we I think everyone hopefully tries to contend with that now mm. uh, I mean Kenyon was writing in the 70s and Frost was writing well before that but mm. yeah I think your relationship has to change in short as you as you learn more and as as the conversation um shifts and mm. gets more mm. hopefully hopefully <laughs> hopefully you know I'm, i think there probably are writers out there who tell them who tell stories about themselves to themselves um such that they probably don't shift out of those narratives mm. of their own style or their own formation um but i really enjoy the changeability of that over time yeah um, I guess when I started forming up Certain Fathoms, the first book, I was doing a PhD that partly focused on Jennifer Rankin's work and her work poetically for me was really, really important at that time. So I would say that she's in the background of that book, but I was equally working half of that PhD on Jennifer Maiden. And I would say that Jennifer Maiden's poetics do not, I, I can't see them in my own work, even though I loved thinking and writing about and still love thinking about and writing about her work. Mm. I wouldn't call her a poetic influence. No. Um, it just doesn't, I don't, I just don't see it making its way through the kind of blood brain barrier there. But when, uh, I remember when Martin Harrison launched Certain Fathoms, he cited a lot of the kind of post-war French poets as what he saw as the kind of firmament behind Certain Fathoms. And had you read them? Uh, a little, uh -huh. yeah. He's talking about Ponge and Valerie and um, poets that I later came to love quite a lot. Isn't that weird? How writers that I came to love, like but it came too. backwards, yeah. and I, I had encountered those poets, but they'd certainly not made what I thought were an impression big enough to enter the book. Yeah. Um, so you know, is that is that perception of influence as real as the ones that you? perceive yourself on your own work I, I think maybe they are because I yeah. think that we have these latent 
kind of responses that come into our brain, you know, we're, we're used to thinking about the way that things like advertising works on us in kind of blatant ways. But I think that reading does it in the same way. We, mm. It could be that I, you know, there was some, some Valerie or something that I read, you know, back and it's gone in and it's come out in some form, but I couldn't see it. I didn't have that, that view through. And sometimes it doesn't take much. No. Um, I remember reading in the anthology that you put together with Jess Wilkinson, the um, contemporary Australian feminist poets. Uh, I read Pam Brown's poem Rubus mm. in that, and that was the only poem of Pam's that I read for, for quite a while, mm. but it made such a huge impact on me. Yeah. I was almost scared of it. I was like, oh God. This is exactly is what I again. want to do. I've uh, got to avoid this because this is going to like really mess with me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you've got to look yeah. it in the face, haven't you? And kind of think, see it as a, uh, not as an adversary. I don't mean confront it. I mm. mean, look at, look at deep in the eyes and kind of go, what can you tell me? Yeah. If that's what I want to make, yeah. uh, what can I glean from this model that has appeared in front of me of exactly what I want to do? Yeah, it's much better to actually... Yeah, avoiding doesn't work. <laughs> no, yeah. well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. You can't avoid the conversation that you're going to have with that with that text. Yeah. So you might as well just have it, yeah. and you'll never reproduce that text no. in best possible sense. You know, whatever you produce is not going to be Pam Brown's Rubus. No. <laughs> definitely not. Or, or any other person's poem. It can't yeah. be. You know, yeah. it will be your response. Um, I don't know. The later books. Uh, yeah, I, I obviously I read so much that I forget. I forget what is the kind of fossil layer. Yeah. You know, I really, I really, anything that I would say now, like I was indicating before, could be way off. My memory of what was influential could be way off. When mm. I was reading, when I was writing Final Theory, I was reading so many poets as a kind of research for the content as well as the style of the, the book that all of those went in. And a lot of them are cited at the end. Um, Matia comes back, John Kinsella... Jill Jones, but then there's other American poets like you know, that aren't mentioned that um, sorry, American poets that aren't mentioned like Olson and um, I was just taking in stuff from all over mm. that happened to feed into some of the themes of the work and trying to kind of respond to that. And Chatelaine, I think I was much more conscious of refining style in that and. I ask Ingrid to launch it because she's in, she's embedded into the genetics of yes. poetry. Yes, yes, that's one that I can see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it sounds bizarre. Um, Lionel Fogarty's work has never left my brain since I first read it, and I started to think about how his treatment of the English language might make sense to me mm. um, as a non-Indigenous poet. Um, as someone who doesn't possess um, a First Nations language or Aboriginal English, although certainly standard Australian English contains lots of that, I started to think more, less about the um, lexicon and more about the kind of jamming of language mm. that his work does and thinking about how that has come into the kind of um, that layer behind my poems. Yeah, so, so much, so, so much. Um, I will read anything now. I am kind of increasingly omnivorous as a reader, I think. So what goes into the pot uh, really could be anything. I don't really read schools. Um, I don't really read eras. 
I read more Australian poetry than any other, but not at the exclusion of anything. Mm. Uh, it just takes up more of my time. So I feel now that there's, <laughs> it's almost impossible for me, for me to kind of tear apart the threads yeah. of that fabric. Yeah. Um, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes it hard to answer the question. I noticed that as I went through the books, I am less and less able to yeah. name. Yeah. And I think that's also because of um, proximity or distance. Mm. You know, I think if I looked back at Chatelaine in probably a couple more years, I might be able to go, oh, it looks like so-and-so mm. <laughs> went into that somewhere. Yeah. At least at that point, that's what it would look like. That's what but it would then, look like, yeah. but that would be wrong. Further on. Yeah, well, <laughs> so fascinating. Um, I'd love to hear more about what you are currently writing your current project as much as you care to say at this point yeah it's um still very much in progress um it isn't poetry primarily it's not poetry it's what i would think of as um personal essay and kind of lyric and lyrical essay so there's some poetry where the prose breaks down at times and the majority of it would be you know a prose line and a prose paragraph uh, the way that will look as a whole into a book is still unknown to me. I'm still quite far away from that. I've been more involved with the research aspect of it so far and less about the style. It's, um, started off as something that I was writing just for myself. It wasn't going to be something for publication. I had been thinking a lot about a prompt or a provocation that Evelyn Araluen, um, the Bunjalung poet, and scholar made to me and to some other people um, a few years ago regarding uh, the question of how decolonization could possibly be enacted through a literary text or through the writing of something creative or enacted through poetics. And that provocation sent me away for a while to think about what my answer was. And so the work that I'm writing now developed as a private answer to that. Um, but as it grew, I thought, I think there's something here that is of use to other non-Indigenous writers. And I don't mean of use in the sense of instructive, simply that there are stories we still need to tell, all of us. And this, this is one little set of stories that I can put into that, you know, into that shared history of, colonial, of the colonial frontier in particular. So... The private part of it was going back to think about where in my life I bore witness or took responsibility for bearing witness to First Nations experience. I had done a lot of that through cultural forms, reading, cinema, art, um, going to talks, listening to radio, talking to Aboriginal people. But I hadn't stepped back and thought, well, where does this fit into my life as a non-Indigenous person? Where, where, where do I bear witness in my own experience? And that took me back beyond myself, back into my, my ascendance in Australia and thinking about, well, how do I take responsibility for the experience of a frontier in Australia? I guess this is going back to the question of the history wars of the, of the 90s and the early 2000s of the black armband view and who, who can take responsibility for what. And I thought, how does that apply to, to me? 
and what is within the purview of my existence and the purview of my um, access to other people's experience. And so thinking about the knowledge that I had of the first settlers in my family tree, the way that they had entered into settlement on unceded land, the way the places that that had happened, the events that had preceded their settlement, the relationships that they formed during settlement, the industries that they were involved in, what policies concerning race were surrounding them at those times. It's a work that I can do that's within the access that I can have to archives, the public record. I have legitimate access to those people's lives and I can therefore take some responsibility for telling them. Mm. Still partial, really partial, in the sense that there's lots that I don't know and I've, I've not lived their lives. But it's a way in for me to start at the very ground level of thinking about responsibility to sovereignty and to sovereign relationships. Just stepping back from the present moment and my life and going, hang on, where did it begin for me? Where did this question begin for me? And it has to start in the family tree. And it has to start with what I know and don't know about where I began in Australia, if you like. Um, So that's why I'm beginning with first first generation of arrivals Mm. Um, and that has been an amazing research trip so far um, and I'm sort of into the next coming up to the next layer of it I suppose pretty soon Um, and there has been a lot of writing along the way but really the moment I just want to get I just want to deal with the informational part of the project and then think about style later on Mm. yeah the gaps that you must be coming up against must be quite yeah confronting yeah i feel like that's almost in that kind of research it's so much more about what's not recorded Mm. i would assume yeah absolutely yeah there's a surprising amount that it comes there's, there's a huge amount of information in places you wouldn't expect it and that is definitely one of the discoveries i guess of the project but something i perhaps already suspected from the kind of life writing and archival poetic work that have been done like people like Natalie Harkin and Janine Lan, um, in terms of writing through their own family histories and seeing the way that they had gone into public records and archives and the kinds of information they had found about First Nations lineages and experience on public record made me think, this is probably true of a lot of past lives. And it is true that there is so much at hand that doesn't make its way into the popular narrative of colonization, good and bad. So on the one hand, I found lots of stuff that I wouldn't have expected. On the other hand, there's just, there's, there's so much that's unknown. And the stuff that's unknown is generally what's unknown in the oral history or the, the held knowledge of my relatives, my living relatives. Mm. The stuff on the public record is, is you know comparatively easy to find, if obscure. But coming back to my own relatives and asking them things, I'm, I'm always gobsmacked by how little we know oh, of our past. This is the thing. When, when we've talked about this project before, I've walked away from our conversations thinking, I don't even know past my grandparents mm. who I knew in person. Mm. And a lot of that is I don't want to know. Mm-hmm. I haven't asked questions because I don't want to hear the answers. Mm. It's astounding that we don't do this kind of thinking at all. As, col- as colonizers I think it's happening slowly but more yeah right I think um, 
I'm certainly not the first person to have taken a kind of um, writer's view of of their their past. Katrina Schlonke's um, uh, Black Rock Massacre is a really formative influence on this work. Okay. Um, stylistically similar, different, but you know she's someone who I kind of think to as a model, and I think uh, Ross Gibson as well in Seven Versions of his versions of an Australian Badland um, it's done something a little bit similar less familial but still kind of site specific localised there's been these kind of formative works of I guess I, I keep describing it to other people as a project of rewriting I'm trying to rewrite the history that I've received and give it more nuance mm. and give it more texture when it comes to sovereign relationships but I think it's also a kind of recovery project we do talk and hear about amazing recovery work that's being done by First Nations uh, scholars, historians, writers, and citizens. Um, but I think that I think that non-Indigenous Australians it behooves us to consider that we may have similar acts of recovery to do as well. Yeah. Well, it, we can't just say, well, it's not my place, and I'm only going to do damage if I go back and do that kind of work. So mm. I'll leave it. You do the recovery. Mm. <laughs> that's, mm. that's not okay. Yeah. Right, that's that's true. In some ways, I suppose that that view is a kind of continuation of yeah, leaving a sort of cultural and emotional labour um, to mm. one side. Yeah. So I'm trying to meet, I'm trying to meet the, the historians and writers who've you know forged ahead here and pick up what I you know pick up my bit. Yeah. And try and use, I guess, my you know, what's available to me as a writer to help with particularly the gaps mm. because there are just vast sections of the canvas where no information is and that's where, you know, maybe that's the bit where the poetry comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah. To kind of fill fill that gap or at least kind of um, dance around the edge of it. Well, at least say there is a gap here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there, there it is. There's an arrow. Yeah, there's space. Space left blank. <laughs> Um, I'm aware I have to let you go despite the fact that I have quite a few more questions to <laughs> ask you but I, I won't keep you but I, I do version two yeah we might have to do a part two that often happens the way that we came to know each other was because I wrote to Jess Wilkinson and said I want a poetry mentor please please help and uh, she pointed me in your direction and after quite a bit of consternation I finally emailed you and over the years you've been like so kind and such an incredible critical voice for me I think that my own work has I don't know that you've read I think you might have read maybe 15 or 20 poems of mine but every single poem I've wrote I've written has been in conversation with what I thought yeah. your your criticism would be so I wanted to kind of <laughs> open <been> no <laughs> it's great it's great I love it it's I mean it's it's uh it feels totally vital. So I wanted to see if you I want to expand that out a little bit and ask the listeners if there are people listening who are younger, just starting up, that kind of thing. I know this is kind of like a role that you hold professionally, but what kinds of advice and thoughts do you have for <laughs> like Dr. Your, Phil of what's poetry? Your, well, more real code, like what's your letters to a young poet? <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Phil is great though, let's face it. <laughs> I think uh, 
who would have thought this is a problem that we'd be having? Um, not a problem. Who would have thought this is a condition that we'd be having where there are uh, numerous, plentiful, and accessible publication opportunities for emerging writers in, in Australia at the moment? So that's great. I think something that uh, an attitude or expectation that can arise from that, though, is um, A, an obsession with, uh, with the voice of youth in particular, or the definition of emerging writers as young, excluding a whole range of people at all stages of life who may be emerging into their writing. So I think that's a problem for publishers and editors to have a bit about. of an obsession with youth. Yeah, I think of like new. Yeah, and I sense. think I mean I I have been on the masthead of Cordite Poetry Review for five years now, but I'm not involved with the publication of Cordite books. But I do talk with Kent McCarter, the publisher, about Cordite books, and he's very interested in the mid-career poet who um, has either been overlooked or maybe has taken a break from their work for a while, but for whatever reason has not broken into a kind of established profile. I think that's very rare. Um, it's a very rare approach at the moment. That's my uh, advice to peers looking at the work of people who are starting out as poets. And my feeling about starting out as a poet is to not rush into that scene. Yeah, I remember you giving me that advice more than once, actually. <laughs> and it was so important for me to hear that. But you've got to rush in as well, because there's yeah. no no one's going to say, okay, now's the right time for you to rush in. So you've got to do it at some stage, right? Mm -hmm. um, and everyone publishes, like, you know, a tranche of poems that they look back on and, you know, think that never should have gone out. Oh, my God, um, yes. That's, you know, that's just given. Yeah. Um, but I do think that while there is this kind of um, celebration of the young emerging voice it's very it must be very tempting for a lot of young emerging poets in particular to think my work must be ready because i'm being told that it's ready and i would say actually maybe just hold back even for a year read more in that time let the work bake like let, let it cook um, because those opportunities won't go away no matter what happens to various levels and approaches to arts funding in australia poetry always finds a way, as Jeff Goldblum was saying. <laughs> so um, I think the rush to, you know, to kind of um, own a bit of that real estate is unnecessary and the work will only be improved by, by sitting for longer and being shared with people. I, I don't think that letting work cook means putting it in the drawer in the dark. I think having a trusted, finding and having a trusted circle of readers um, is a way of helping it to cook mm. um, or going and reading it you know publicly is another way of doing that um, but I think inscribing it into the world taking up space with it I would just say the, the, the place and the time will come for that yeah um, so just just take take some time that's what I would have told myself when I was <laughs> 19 and sending a lot of unsolicited material out to yeah anywhere that advertised a call out yeah oh absolutely and it's a it's a, for me it was very much an addiction and it was absolutely about uh just the number just like honestly the number of acceptances per year that's all i cared about mm. for so long and i think knowing you really uh 
gradually but importantly I got the message like hold back wait read more that was the other thing I really needed to hear Mm. read so much more than you write Mm. like yeah that's great advice (laughs) (laughs) thank you I feel like such a um (laughs) what's the word a naysayer oh such an awful position to take of like some people have someone has to say no (laughs) um yeah yeah I feel that gap the age gap when I say things like that I think which is why I in some ways don't want to make it a thought that's actually for young people because it I find myself imagining that I'm talking um yeah, I don't know what it is. It I think, applies to everyone too. Yeah, like that's what I mean. Everyone's a stand everyone. away. Yeah, 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 yeah. What I find icky about saying things like that is that thing that there's some assumption that um, I'm not a beginner anymore. And I suppose I didn't say this about the current work, but you're still recording, so it can go in. Which is that because it's a piece of prose and long form nonfiction, two things that I've never published before. In a, in, in a literary mode, you know, I've published scholarly essays and I've published um, kind of creative essays and I've published um, essay reviews, but a creative book-length work of prose, uh, I've never worked with that beast before and I feel like such a baby mm. and it's great mm. and I feel like a total beginner. I may not be a beginner in terms of opportunity. I have a publisher who's interested, you know, I have readers I have you know I, I had the infrastructure around the work that's something that I've gained with some time but in terms of form and voice and all that stuff um, and the content you know I, I, I often don't know what I'm doing I, I feel like I'm um, just just paddling as hard as I can to keep the head of the work kind of above the water mm. of working and I don't always know how I'm even doing that so I think partly why I recoil from that sort of invitation to give advice is it assumes that I do know what I'm doing. Mm. Sometimes do and often don't. <laughs>